the reason someone in, in say, the United States should care about someone cooking in Asia or Africa is that we are a globally connected sort of community. And the behaviors that are happening by us in, say, America or us in Africa, for example, when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions are all connected. So the more we can get everyone to move towards decarbonizing their lives, be that cooking, be that electric vehicles, be that grid, it's going to impact all of us. So that's what connects these two areas together. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi, an activist and cause marketer who's passionate about social impact and building a more sustainable future for all of us. Every week, I invite you to care a little bit more so that together we can all build a better, brighter future. Did you know that nearly half of the world's population, that's around 4 billion people, lack access to clean and modern cooking products? This issue affects women and girls in particular who lose around 13 hours per week cooking with wood, which causes smoke pollution. And it's also tied to almost 4 million deaths per year. This isn't something we often think of in the West. But guess what? That all impacts our global climate. That's almost three times more than global deaths from traffic accidents. So think about that for a moment. Lack of access to clean cooking costs the world economy approximately $2.4 trillion each year. This adversely impacts and makes our global systems pretty unsafe. It pollutes people's health and it ultimately pollutes our climate. To unpack this issue and get to the meat of the problem, and possible solutions, I'm joined today by Ben Jeffries. He is the CEO of ATEC, a social enterprise startup that aims to create global access to clean cooking systems. Ben also happens to be a multi-award winning entrepreneur, so this bodes well for the success that he's working to build in decarbonizing cooking for households across Asia and Africa. Ben, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks Karina. Great to be here. So as we get started with today's conversation, I really would like to just hear from you. Tell us what inspired you to take your entrepreneurial efforts into this world of decarbonizing cooking. Yeah, I, I think for me, it's always been a passion of mine to look at, okay, well, how can I use my sort of the luck that I've had in life and my skills and abilities to create the greatest impact possible. And I think you did a great job of highlighting some of the really big points around cooking and the social concerns that it makes for people and the environmental concerns as well. So for me, similar to what you just read out, when I found out that this is effectively the amount of impact it's having on people and the planet, it makes it very hard to focus in on anything else. So that's kind of what drives me. Well, I could really understand just from thinking about the fact that our environment is, of course, connected. So if somebody's polluting in China and they are creating a whole lot of waste that goes up into the air, it's going to affect us in other parts of the globe. It's going to create more global warming, as a, for example, because that particulate matter all ends up in the atmosphere. 
But it's also something where we've continually kind of kicked that can down the road to countries where there isn't as much economic prosperity. So as global economies start to rise in certain areas, they also still are kept somewhat down in others. So this is an economic problem. It's a pollution problem. It's a futurist problem because we should all be seeking to build more healthy future. So I really was hoping that you could share for us a simple story of an individual or a home or a community that you've been able to positively affect with your work at ATAC. Yep. Yeah. I mean, for us, I mean, we've got loads of those examples, which is, is a good thing in its own right. For us, if I think through, we originally started in Cambodia and some of the early customers who were traditionally cooking with wood in those areas, particularly women. I remember the first woman we ever worked with in Cambodia and she was spending actually quite a fair bit of money as well on medicine for various ailments that she had from cooking with wood because she was cooking this tiny little kitchen that was really filled with smoke every day. So she was losing a huge amount of time uh, going to have to collect the wood, prepare it for cooking, and then was having all these health issues as well. And she said she used to cough constantly and constantly had sore eyes, etc. And then to go back uh, after she'd had the technology that we're able to put in and see the changes in her life, she was able to, she'd stopped having to buy the medicine, she was healthier, happier, and then she looked at starting up sort of additional veggie markets or sorry, veggie gardens to sell at the market and nearby as well. So she was increasing her economic prosperity while her health and the environment at the same time. So let's talk about the tech that you've worked to create. Ultimately, I would like to better understand how these units are essentially used by people in these smaller areas to really shift their reliance from woods or other materials that they might burn, including fuels like propane, to something like what you're offering? Yeah, so I think we can all agree that very much we're trying to move towards this decarbonized future where we're getting everyone sort of this big shift towards electric, towards renewables, et cetera, moving forward more off-grid, et cetera. So we offer two solutions. We do one, which is a biogas system which basically these are for small-scale farming households. They put this into their house. They then take the waste from their livestock, green waste, kitchen waste, put this into the biodigester and this amazing bacteria, which is very similar to bacteria in the cow's stomach, break it down into methane, which can be used for cooking and then also fertilizer for farming. And then over the last couple of years, we've also launched an electric cooking product range, uh, which for us is a, a very exciting development. It's a hugely scalable product. And for us, this is following the rollout of the grid in these countries. If you look at somewhere like Bangladesh, almost 100% of people now have access to grid connectivity in the country. So, But still 70% are cooking with wood. So we see this as a really fantastic way to transition people across from this sort of polluting, highly inefficient cooking style to a very high energy efficiency cooking style that actually reduces greenhouse gases at the same time. You know, in the intro, I mentioned how many people are dying just from the pollution of burning wood in their homes. And I think this is a hard concept for people to grasp here in the West, whether you be in Australia or in the United States or often, you know, Europe. We are so far from days where we polluted to the extent where it would create that kind of a problem just from cooking food that we don't really understand what it's like. You might see something as simple as, oh, the pollution index today isn't great. Perhaps don't go for a run, but that's about the extent of it. So talk to us about what the air quality is like in some of these spots and how it might be improving with advents in technology like this with ATEC. Yeah, so interestingly, I was in Rwanda about a month ago. So we're looking at setting up, uh, working with a distributor in Rwanda. 
And interestingly, I flew into Kigali, which kind of sits in a valley at sunrise. And as I came out of the plane, you could actually just see the haze in the valley sitting around from all the wood cooking that's occurring all, all in Kigali in that area. And I remember going talking to the distributor and saying, hey, we know we've succeeded when you look out across Kigali first thing in the morning, there's not that haze sitting across the valley. And that kind of really resonated with him. That's a good example. I mean, it's, it's the equivalent of smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. I think that's a, a good way of thinking about it, particularly in a lot of these kitchens in developing countries. So when we see something like that, when we say smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, does that mean that most of these individuals are dying from lung cancer or is it something else, some other disease that's hitting them? Yeah, so there's three main health impacts. One is, like you say, lung-related disease, be it cancer or whatever the case is. Another very common one we see because you're standing over the fire a lot is cataracts and blindness, again, affecting majority women. And then the other one that's a really long-term concern is, as you'd expect, the women quite often have their children in the kitchen with them. And there's a direct link between smoke exposure and long-term malnutrition through an underdevelopment of the intestinal system of children. So that's a really multi-generational concern as well. So the quicker we can get people away from this traditional way, which seems strange because it's like, you know, we've always done this, but I think we're on the edge of actually solving this problem globally from a technical perspective. You mentioned that you have two basic systems that you work to sell, one of them being Mm. a biogas system that can actually biodigest farming material, whether that be manure or vegetable scraps, whatever that really is, right? Or an electric cooking product range. Now, does this mean that the biogas system isn't reliant on electricity? Correct. It's a fully off-grid system, a fully closed-loop system. So that means that even in developing portions of the world where they may not already have the electrical grid system in place, you're able to impact them positively. So that's fantastic. Now, I'm curious, when you mentioned somewhere like Rwanda, I mean, I have flown into communities and even somewhere much closer to where I am within Mexico, where you land and you're seeing a significant haze to the point where you cannot see the mountain that doesn't appear all that far off in the distance. And I imagine the air quality issues are similar in those spaces, but I'm not certain that they're using wood to cook with. I think it's electric bound things at that point. It's just the lack of catalytic converters, for instance, mean that the cars pollute a lot more. And so with the increase in automobile usage, they're dealing with a lot more exhaust, which adds the pollution and also manufacturing, which adds the pollution So if you were to kind of segment that off from what you're seeing in Rwanda, how much of it is coming from cooking and how much from other forms of pollution? Do you have a way to measure that? Yeah, it's a really good question. I'm not an expert in that area. So yeah, it'd be a tricky one for me to give a good answer on. But yeah, I think it's a combination. I mean, mean, the general view is this, what they call PM 2.5 particulate emissions. So basically uh, where that measurement is. So I think it's a combination of all those things. So I think it depends on the world you are and what's sort of contributing to that. But I think more broadly, what we're trying to achieve globally is is to really bring that decarbonized electric solutions to everyone. And that will solve the manufacturing problem. That will solve the cooking problem. And that will solve the vehicle emissions problem if we're able to transition to renewable energy and electric. So I think that's probably the, the biggest push we should move towards. Now, here in California, where I live, many homes have worked to go to solar and feed that back up to the grid, which then gets redistributed during usage. And then at nighttime, when the sun isn't shining, I'm relying on local power plants. 
Well, I recently learned that in California, we are soon to shut down one of our last remaining, if not the only remaining nuclear power plants, which is greener energy than those that burn fuel. And that PG&E has essentially said to the populace here, we're going to have rolling brownouts this summer because we can basically handle the stress on the grid for either air conditioning or recharging your electric cars, but not both. (laughs) And so we've had, as many can imagine, some pretty warm summers and they seem to be getting warmer. (laughs) The stretch by which I'll be in the 100 degree realm is seeming to get a little bit longer year by year. So here in California, we're seeing the temperatures continue to rise. We'll have a 100 degree temperature in Fahrenheit over the course of a week, two, maybe even three now in the middle of summer where I am, which was really the rarity even just 10 years ago. So people are using those air conditioners more. More people are installing them and more people are buying Teslas and other electric vehicles because Gavin Newsom had even said that he wanted all new vehicles sold within California to be electric by 2035. And so we've been all moving towards that, right? I have an electric charging station at my home. We had an electric lease for a while. We've since turned that in and are working with older vehicles at the present time. But ultimately, this is impacting even our decision about at what point we convert to being fully electric because the grid stability isn't really there to manage both the needs of the people and ensure that we maintain power all hours of the day. Mm. It's gotten to the point where I have even installed a propane powered, and I hate to admit this, but it's true, we have a propane powered generator. And we needed that because we were having such long stretches of the power being turned off in the summer months because of fear of fire. The types of fires that we're getting are often started by electricity. A power line will come down, a spark occurs, and with that spark, suddenly a hillside is aflame. And so PG&E, instead of working to repair all of those lines and getting into the deep woods where some of them exist and ensure that they're clear of debris and all the poles are correct and everything else, have instead said, oh, well, we're just going to turn off the power if it's dry out and there are high winds. So when this happens for a stretch of five, seven, 10 days, then suddenly you need another solution. You're in big trouble. So I guess my overall point is that I think we are stressing the system across the board, even here and what people consider to be the first world. And I put that in quotes because I think it's a term from the patriarchy, so to speak, that should probably be put to bed. But ultimately, it's a reality for so many of us that we have to now consider balancing what our energy usage is, where it's coming from, even those of us who are very inspired to move to 100% green energy if we can. So given the frame of that context, what would you say to people like those that are leading PG&E here, Pacific Gas and Electric in California? <laughs> it's a fascinating scenario that you just painted there because I think you're highlighting probably the same challenge that everyone is seeing or grid providers are seeing in every part of the world. So I think it's a bit different here in Australia. We just had our own little energy crisis. So I'm based in Australia and sort of split time between here and Asia, but my family's here in Australia. And in Australia, we're in obviously the opposite season. We're in winter and there's all these issues around not having enough electricity and gas for heating because we kind of stuffed up even though we're a gas producing and huge electricity producing nation. It was just very inefficiently set up. So 
So we're having the opposite, the same issue, but at the opposite end, at the cold end of the year rather than warm end of the year. So to me, it's like, it's an interesting question because if you're a first mover, I think that's great because you're passionate about it. But at the same time, it also does, like you're a great example, present a bit of risk because it's like, hey, I'm 100% renewable. And it's really easy because I actually don't have any power in my house. So that's why I'm 100% <laughs> renewable. <laughs> so, so, yeah. And I don't think this problem's going away. One of my um, favorite sort of economist slash investors is an American woman called uh, Lynn Alden. I don't know if you've ever looked her up, but she just nails this stuff. On the heels of this, I will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, L-Y-N, Lynn Alden. She's a fantastic seer of the big picture and she's saying that the next decade is going to be the zigzag decade from an economic perspective we're going to go improve and then probably come down a bit and improve come down a bit and the big driver around that is we're undergoing this huge energy transition from fossil fuel based energy to renewables based energy and basically there's a, a long investment time frame on that transition you're talking like 10 years to transition power plants etc and we're actually just not quite ready so we're going to have this slightly weird decade in her view where we're going to move forward, but then it's like, oh, all of a sudden the price of oil or gas is is sky high because there's not enough supply because people are not investing that and renewables are not quite ready, et cetera. So we are going to have a bit of a choppy period over this time. However, I think this really highlights to all of us, we need to be pushing back to our government representatives that, hey, getting abundant, reliable access to electricity for all is really the the goal that we want to have for everyone on the planet. Well, I think it highlights for us here in the United States with a primary problem of the fact that we have privatized many of these industries that should perhaps be a more public managed system. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, you had, there was all sorts of controversy here with Pacific Gas and Electric where you know, even in the midst of all these challenges and the wildfires that occurred a couple of years back, which forced many people, myself included, to evacuate my home for 10 days or more. Many, many people lost their homes. I have close friends who lost their homes. Well, you know, that was stressful enough. But then to learn that PG&E had taken their executives on a retreat up into Napa Valley shortly before and spent, you know, millions of dollars on just the perks that they were giving their senior executives who had not solved these big problems. And then at the same time, mismanage their entire grid structure. It's almost too much to swallow. It's like that giant pill where you're like, okay, we have a monopolistic system where there's but one option thoroughly for our energy sources, unless you go completely off the grid. But then if you go completely off the grid, you need to invest in those battery backups and everything else to carry you through the the times in which you do not have as much solar energy right? Mm. Or wind energy or what, whatever system that you ultimately install, it is expensive. They're also very difficult to even procure at this point in time, because you're competing again with the rising electric vehicle perspective as well. So most of us who installed solar in our homes had been encouraged at the time we did so not to install battery backups, <laughs> which may have been foolish in hindsight, so it's something I spent a fair amount of time thinking about simply because we've been impacted over the course of the last couple of years in particular, and we installed our solar, what would be 10 years ago. Yep. Something else that I wanted to touch on, because I think, you know, even as we're talking about these particular problems as they exist in developing world countries, as well as the problems that we face here with grid and security issues, 
you know, there is a rising trend of people wanting to go to full electric because they don't want to utilize gas in their homes anymore. But there's this also division where it's like, well, if I do not have the ability to be on green electricity, and if my electric company is therefore going to burn gasoline or another petrochemical in order for me to be able to keep my electricity, at what point does it make sense to make that shift? So I wonder if that's something you have any knowledge around or if you just wanted to share your thoughts. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to go back to a point of what you said previously because I think um, but I'll park that for a second because I think there's a really interesting decision for us as in the developed world. But going on that point, yeah, I think this is actually a pretty simple equation because we do these calculations all the time when looking at our electric products and looking at generating carbon credits for them, which is part of how we sort of fund and finance our, our products to bring the prices and costs down for the households we work with. So basically, if your grid is 100% coal, then use LPG. That's very rare these days. Most people have a, a mix. Somewhere like California, I think, has a relatively good mix of renewables. So by LPG, you mean liquid propane gas. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. That's an Australian term. Yeah. So yeah, propane or, or gas. So if you look at California, um, I believe there's quite a decent mix of renewables in the grid and sort of, you know, some gas-fired power plants or oil-fired power plants. Basically, as long as it's not 100% coal, you having less environmental impact by switching to electric cooking specifically induction, magnetic induction cooking, which is where you need pots that only works with certain pots. But that's the highest efficiency. You're getting up to 92% energy efficiency. So it's kind of a discussion, the same with electric cars. They talk about the long tailpipe. Oh, are we just transferring the emissions sort of further away? But it's actually, it's not just that you're going one for one in energy. You've got a much more efficient device here. And it's the same in cooking. So generally, I'd say I don't know Californian grid, but I think most likely electric would be the, the way to go. So as you talk about this induction technology, does that mean that you could no longer use your cast iron pans or would those work just fine? I guess I'm, I'm a little less familiar. The beautiful old Carusi French pans or whatever you've got uh, work 100% on induction. It's actually just cheap pots and pans that don't work because they're aluminium. So they don't have the, any inductive material in them. Ah, Okay. I think I understand now. That's great. Thank you. So I guess I should stay on my present plan, which is when we're ready for that kitchen remodel, we will be shifting away from gas. Now, you know, I learned to cook on a gas run stove, and so I will probably have to alter <laughs> how I approach the stovetop. But what I've seen even when vacationing and other spots and using the induction services. I didn't realize that's what they were, but they seem to have improved quite a lot over the last few years. And I will say frying an egg on them felt even simpler than it does at my own home presently. So yeah, that's fantastic. I had to change my cooking habits because I was used to sort of, you know, you turn the gas stove on, then you get stuff prepared and then you come back and cook. And I've got like a three hob Bosch sort of, you know, super duper induction one that has this boost function. And literally I'm frying an egg in like 15 seconds wow. for this thing. So yeah, it's it's pretty good. I was always like, oh, I love gas. I love cooking with gas. And then I was like, oh man, this, no, this is the way to go. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, I have not loved my oven ever since I moved into this house. So I'm looking forward to the day when this is done because there's just something about my particular oven. It does not maintain a temperature to save its life. And so I've tried everything I can. And <laughs> part of the remodel, part of the remodel may even get rid of the microwave at that point too, 
because I recently learned that a microwave, and I don't know if you knew this, but the temperatures inside a microwave exceed that that normally exists on planet Earth, which is incredible. Wow. It's because of the water vapor within the thing vibrating so quickly. It actually plasticizes carbohydrates. And so that means like if, for instance, you are microwaving your spaghetti because you want to have it on the second day, that spaghetti essentially that texture change that you sense is because it has actually become plasticized. And when you do that to a food, your body doesn't really recognize it as food anymore. It's sure it's edible, Mm. but it doesn't really know what to do with it. And so you're essentially going to be shutting down part of your digestive processes, which isn't good for your gut microflora. I mean, there's so many reasons to avoid it. So from this point forth, I am never, ever, ever going to microwave bread or pasta. And that's been my decision. It's Dr. William Lee who taught me this, and I'm not going back. Okay, wow. Yeah. You've just made my wife very happy because she made me get rid of the microwave when we moved into our new house. And I was like, oh, but it's convenient. And then, yeah, no. So now I've got the science as to why it was a good decision. So she'll she'll be very happy. Right. There's another thing that you might not think about, but he called this out in one of the courses that he's teaching. He offers online called Eat to Beat Disease Course, right? And I've been taking it. He says, okay, so I don't know if you have a microwave at home, but you ever, you know, come up to the microwave and you hit that button to open it when it's still running. Don't ever do that. You're getting a blast of microwaves in the face. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, I do this all the time. I'll hit the one minute start on rewarming my coffee as a, for example. And at about the 30 second mark, I'll be like, oh, that's good enough. And I'll just open it, right? Press the button, open it. And he says, that's the absolute worst thing you should do. Wait for it to finish its time or hit that clear button and let it finish its time. Let the fan stop running inside the microwave and then open it. But he also then admitted that he only uses his for storage, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so there you go. I'm picturing cookbooks and spices in his microwave, and perhaps that's a better use of the space. Oh, that's a, not a bad way to go. A friend of uh, mine who works in this sector as well in electric cooking in Africa and Asia too, he is sold on air fryers. He says air fryers are the best thing ever. I've never actually tried one. I don't know if you've ever tried one, but he said they're great for reheating. Like you can use like a microwave, but it's actually just heat, heating the food and I hope a more natural way. Yeah, I've actually been told that the best replacement for an air fryer is just a really standard toaster oven. They do the same job. Ah, yep. So, you know, what's interesting too, though, to think about is just the overall power usage of these units. I've known for some time that a microwave uses a heck of a lot of energy because of the way my breakers are set up and it's on its own little channel, right? Same applies to something like a toaster, because if you're running the toaster, the microwave, and maybe the coffee pot at the same time, you might flip a switch, right? Mm -hmm. And so each of these units in and of itself uses a lot of energy. And so if we're thinking more mindfully about the energy we use to cook our food as part of this whole process, then I think we would give up on microwaving our food as well. So it's something to think about. I'm not going to be the ultimate proponent that says never use your microwave again, because I realize the convenience of it, especially as a parent of young boys is pretty incredible. You know, we use a lot of things from our freezer that we might then thaw in the microwave and cook to speed things along. I'm just shifting to more fresh everything as part of my journey in this nutrition space. And more fresh everything also means less use of the microwave. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. We've done it for three years now. And yeah, 
a little bit of behavior change at the start, and we don't even notice it. Right, exactly. So as you've gone through and created impact through your company, I'd like to know a little bit more about how you're measuring that impact and what goals you have ahead. Where do you see this company going over the course of the next year, five years? What do you think you'll be able to accomplish with ATEC? Yeah, so that kind of brings me a bit to what's sort of unique about the approach we're doing. So the solutions we do are IoT devices. So like we've got like, you say, your smart fridge or whatever, which in our situation in developed countries, like, oh, yeah, it's cool. You know, I can see how much milk I've got, you know, fun little features like that. For us, it actually has this really big additional value in these areas because it's like, oh, okay, well, you're trying to get the prices down. Why add in this extra cost of this sort of data connectivity? But for us, it opens up a few things. Number one, it gives us highly accurate reading on usage, which we can then convert into assessing our impact. Number two, it also means that basically, if you think of the well-known American one, but these kind of like pay-as-you-go or I forgot what we call it in the West, but it's like you can break it down into smaller payments to pay for a thing. There's, there's various companies who are doing this now. So we do pay-as-you-go. So rather than having to buy their solution up front, which is really hard for a lot of these households, they can break it down into as little as $5 a month to pay us off of the system over for a few years, which means the money that they're earning from the behavior change and in the biogas side, it's the increased agriculture, et cetera, then pays for the system. So that works really well. And then the third thing is we can then take that data as well and then convert that into carbon credits. So for us, them, for companies or individuals, if you're taking a flight, et cetera, and like, hey, I want to offset my flight or offset my lifestyle, et cetera, you can then actually purchase these ATEC carbon credits, which number one, sort of offsets any emissions you're doing, but number two, has this huge social impact as well. So we do it through an organization called Gold Standard, which is kind of like an international best practice on carbon credits. And yeah, it's a great way of not just sort of offsetting your emissions, but then also actually achieving amazing social impact. So right now where things are at, where it's a very exciting time because a lot of companies committed to net zero, a lot of people are transitioning to net zero lifestyles. So the demand for carbon credits has gone up significantly, which is excellent because this will accelerate our transition to a renewable energy economy. And for us, our ultimate goal is to actually incentivize that behavior change directly. So with our devices, we can actually, ideally at scale, be able to take these households who it's like, say, cooking with wood and say, hey, if you're able to change over to, say, electric or biogas, not only will it be better fit for you, but because of our IoT infrastructure, mobile money, backend, et cetera, we'll actually be able to pay you for that behavior change through that carbon credit revenue uh, into the future. So that's ultimately where we want to get to, is to be able to make that a seamless experience, people to go, hey, so you're going to pay me to change this behavior, cook, which is better for me anyway. Like saying someone paying you to change to an electric vehicle, they'd be like, oh, hey, well, that sounds like a good idea. Why not? It's already good for me. That's for us how we really unlock this problem moving forward. Well, I think you're speaking to something here that we should talk more about too. And that is ultimately that there's an equity layer in this because you're essentially saying to people, that are finally getting access to the electricity that would equalize their ultimate access to the same types of power and electricity that we enjoy in the West, while also saying, we're incentivizing you to do this as cleanly as possible. And with these carbon credits, we're also opening up a new marketplace for people that isn't just the plant a tree perspective. And I don't have anything against planting trees. We should be planting more trees every day. But I do take issue with some of how they have organized carbon credits because 
it's like you're borrowing on the future growth of what that tree will become rather than how much carbon that tree is actually sequestering on day one. So I question kind of the calculation that has been put together there. Whereas what it seems that you're building is something that is more connected to the emissions that are not being produced today, which is directly impacting not only the environment in that local community and the health of the people there, but our atmosphere as well. So I like that. I think that's very good. Now, at this point, I would like to invite everybody to visit your website. That's atechglobal, A-T-E-C global.io. And take a look at the work that they're putting into the world. That's atecglobal.io. You can also follow them on Twitter at atechbio. And also, of course, I will include links to all of these in show notes as always. Now, as far as talking a little bit more deeply about how you are measuring your impact and where you're headed over the course of the next few years, Is this whole system that you're working to build with the Internet of Things, the IoT, is that how you're taking the company global as you're focused on Asia and also Africa? Yeah, so for us, it's about, okay, how can we provide a scalable solution to create this widespread behavior change of taking people from cooking with wood to to modern cooking solutions that are decarbonizing at the same time. And really that carbon credit is the key to do that. So for us, what we're kind of leading the charge in is to automate that whole back-end system because effectively you can say, hey, if you start doing this, this is great, and then we'll do carbon credits and you can either use it to reduce the sort of payments, et cetera. Some people are giving away things for free, which I don't think is actually a good idea, but you can do it all manually, but it's highly inefficient and it's not a very scalable solution. So that's where we're kind of at the cutting edge of automating all this process. So if we do one, a thousand, a billion units, then it can all effectively be run on the same infrastructure and connect into people like yourself and the listeners, myself, anyone who's needing to offset companies, et cetera, and go literally just go, okay, I need to offset. Great. I want to do this high impact stuff at the same time. And that effectively, I think this links a bit back to the point you were saying before is around sort of the developed world is we've kind of created this huge sort of climate change issue through our behavior over the last you know couple of hundred years. We've done very well out of it. And these kinds of technologies is a way of actually not just sort of, you know, cruising across the top of, of solving global emissions, but actually being able to look at how can we transfer some of that wealth through to these developing country households in a way that makes their lives better and achieves the goals and solves some of the problems that really we kind of created. Well, ultimately, it's a question of climate justice in a way. And so you're spearheading that for communities that would otherwise potentially not gain access to these sorts of technologies because of the costs associated with them. So I commend that. Yeah, I think there's a very, it's a good phrase, climate justice, because there's an interesting thing going on right now in this carbon credit market. A lot of interest, which is fantastic. Everyone's kind of now taking it very seriously. But there's a lot of people in the market as well who are potentially looking at it of like, oh, well, fantastic. I can create this impact, deliver these huge profits back to shareholders, investors, et cetera, et cetera, which is so I can, you know, feel great and do this. But at the same time, we need to keep who's actually generating these emission reductions at the core core and centre of what we do. So we need to look at how can we transfer that value creation through to them rather than it just going to, you know, people like me or sort of investors, et cetera, who are already doing pretty well at this stage. But really, it should be going to the people that are are creating the impact. Fantastic. So what has your carbon impact been thus far since you commenced operations? Yeah, that's a 
very good question. I don't have that stat in front of me, but it's uh, on our website. <laughs> It'd be at least, uh, I think, over a, a five or 10,000 tonnes offset emissions at this stage. But we're hoping the next couple of years to take that up to a couple hundred thousand tonnes per year. I'm going to go to the site right now and check. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I think that's great. I mean, ultimately, all of the technological solutions that we have at our fingertips to improve our reliance on these fossil fuels and to ultimately shift our patterns is absolutely what's needed. Mm-hmm. So look at right here. You do the easy to make payments with PayGo. As of February 2022, ATEC has solved clean cooking for 5,315 families impacting over 26,000 lives. As far as the hours saved, over 2 million hours in cooking, mm-hmm. which is incredible. Tons of greenhouse gas reduced, 7,836 CO2 equivalent. Lovely. Kilowatt hours provided over 4 million and over 11,000 beneficiaries. So those are some pretty admirable stacks. I encourage anybody who is listening today to visit atechglobal.io and explore this website because they do share quite a bit about the impact they're already having and their plans for the future ahead. Now, in this last portion of our interview, I like to ask all of my guests a simple question. Is there a question that I haven't asked that you wish I had? And if I haven't asked that question, could you ask and answer it? Yeah, so I don't know if it's a question per se, but I think a really fascinating point for all of us to consider, and I think this is in any country moving forward, is when it comes to sort of this decarbonizing our lives, which is the broader climate impact perspective. And you kind of said, well, what should we do? Because we're having these, say, brownouts in California is we're going to have some trade-off discussions. So, for example, in the West, we're kind of like, oh, nuclear, you know, oh, no, that's not good. We don't want to do nuclear. But it is actually 100% renewable from a carbon emissions perspective. Hydro, for us in Australia, hydro has always kind of been, you know, localised environmental impact. Yet it actually is also 100% renewable and great for, say, off-peak energy production. So I think we've all kind of got a question of, of going, yes, we have our ideals, but the reality as we do this transition is there is going to be some level of trade-off we need to consider. So if we aren't looking at baseload, be it nuclear, hydro, I mean, ideally it's batteries, but as you stated, there's a heap of demand in that area. But we need to weigh these things up against each other because there's not always going to be a 100% elegant solution. So it's a bigger planet versus localized impact. How do we manage this? I think it's a question for all of us moving forward. That's fantastic. Well, we'll keep that in mind. I will also encourage my listeners to go back and listen to the episode on Energy Ogre. They are a company that is working to optimize how power is used here in the United States and specifically in Texas. And we talked about a lot of these things from energy storage and also how we're creating energy at present plants across the United States and also around the globe. And it just proved to be, I think, a really deep and interesting conversation that I didn't expect to be quite as fun as it was. I mean, we were talking about electricity, (laughs) but it was a really intense and kind of beautiful conversation with Jessen Bradshaw, the founder and CEO of that company. So perhaps I will also put a link to this episode on that podcast page because I think they are directly tied and related. Mm. Well, thank you, Ben, so much for your hard work and for taking the time to join us today. Do you have any other closing thoughts that you'd like to share? 
No, let's just keep moving forward. I think, Corinna, it's, it's not going to be an easy path, but it is the future is electric and decarbonized. And, and let's make sure we can bring that and abundant energy to everyone on the planet. That's the goal. 100%. Now, as mentioned before, I will be sure to include links to Ben's website. That's www.atechglobal.io. That's A-T-E-C global.io. On our website at caramorebevetter.com, I'll include social links, the LinkedIn profile for Ben, so you can connect with him directly, their Facebook, Twitter connections as well. And so I invite you to visit caremorebebetter.com to find all of that. There you will also find a complete blog, video transcripts, and even the complete transcripts of our discussion today. As you consider what we've covered today, I want you to think a little bit more about the difference that you can make even within the walls of your own home. Can you alter your personal consumption of power? Perhaps you stop using the microwave to cook your food. Can you decarbonize your footprint a little bit more? Can you convert to green energy and all electric? I've yet to convert to that gas-free cooking myself, but it is part of our remodeling plan and we're actively saving for that. Never forget that each of us can make an impact and by supporting companies like ATEC Global and the work they're doing to decarbonize cooking, we're heading in the right direction. By educating ourselves and by funding interesting projects like this one, we can all make a difference each and every day. If you enjoyed today's show, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or your favorite podcast app. And if you didn't love it, I'd love to hear from you directly as well. So just go ahead and do that rating. Ultimately, it helps us to reach more people. Remember always to lean into discovery, stay curious and hopeful, ask questions, understand you don't know everything, nobody can. And as you do ask those questions, think about that better world that we can create together. Thank you listeners now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more and we can be better. We can even regenerate earth. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good. 